welcome to Church at the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. God, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be here today. Lord, we ask that you would be in the midst of all that is said. We thank you for Pastor Matt and all of the time and energy that he's put into preparing this message for us. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to what you have to say. And Lord, may we leave here different than we came in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, welcome. Uh, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, like Kevin said, my name is Matt. I'm a pastor here. Um, obviously, I'm not the lead pastor because I only do this every once in a while. Uh, but I get to talk about some of the things that is uh, most important to me. And since we're getting ready to jump into evangelism class in three w- next week, and it's, again, like Kevin said, it's going to be three weeks, this is my plug for uh, being able to share the gospel. And we're going to be reading some uh, scripture in Luke 24, 13 through 35, and I'm gonna give you some time to get there while I talk about this. And this is a set of verses that has hit me a long time ago, and it's gonna describe about two guys walking on the road and Jesus coming to them and sharing the truth that's in scripture. Um, As we read this, you're gonna hear some of the the common uh, themes that happen when you share the gospel with somebody, that there's an excitement, there's some uh, energy that's built. But this set of verses kind of stumbled me because when Jesus goes to share the gospel with them or share the truth, it's not from the New Testament. Obviously, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So he was taking them into the Old Testament and revealing himself there. Um, I hope you're all there. If you would, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Usually we have somebody else do this, but as I read this, we're probably not, well, we're not going to be coming back and unpacking this set of verses. This is just springing us into the next set of verses that Tanner's going to have up on the screen for us. And if you have a a notebook or you want to take some notes, there's going to be a ton of scripture references that we're going to be going back to. So let's go ahead and read. Luke 24, 13 through 35. And that very day, two men were going to a village named Emmaus. After seven miles, after seven miles, or about seven miles from Jerusalem. Um, And they were walking and talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were uh, talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they, sit, they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named uh, Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb earlier in the morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back saying that he had even seen a vision, or they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of, us, uh, some of those who uh, were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Jesus, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ suffer 
these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to a village to which uh, they were going. Uh, He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is uh, toward the end, uh, toward evening, and the day is now uh, far spent. So he went into to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were uh, with them and gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. They told, uh, then they told uh, what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your words. I I ask, Lord, that you will just remove uh, me from this and that your words will uh, speak loudly, that the Holy Spirit will reveal and open up our hearts just as it did that day on the uh, road to Emmaus, that we will be able to see Scripture and we will be able to see you as the promised Messiah. Amen. Go ahead. You can be seated. Um, And I would love to say this, but I'm getting older. Um, and I, this, I'm on my third, my third study Bible in my life. I had one in my 20s, I had one in my 30s, and I bought this last one in my 40s, and I just truly loved it. But over the last few years, my eyes have changed, and my study Bible now has to have multiple lights shining on it, and sometimes I have my camera out to enlarge the print, so obviously I'm going to be buying a new Bible soon. Um, but it's, it's my study Bible. It's one that I've been working out of 10 years, so um, I have, I put the uh, scripture verses on my iPad, and um, 16 wasn't enough, so I had to expand it a little bit more, and it, when I got here, I even had it open up more. So um, I appreciate your um, understanding in this. Uh, so as, as I read this, and again, this, this verse or set of verses and this story um, amazed me because like I find myself to be in that evangelism mode often. Uh, we work at the coffee house and the people that come into the coffee house on a regular basis, we make relationships with them and we have a desire that we'll share the gospel. And I find myself all, often hoping that this is my next divine appointment as they come in. And we've had a lot of people that have come in that have now started to come to church with us and we've sent them to other churches. But that evangelism mindset has always been uh, a passion of mine. Even when I didn't think I was, it, it always was there. But as I read that, I've read this story in the past and even as I've gone over it again, I keep hearing it over and over again, how, um, how these two men we're seeing Christ work, seeing Jesus do his ministry and seeing everything. And yet as they saw the crucifixion and they, and Jesus had even predicted the crucifixion that it was going to happen. But as they saw it, they were still disheartened that because they had had a hope 
that was something other than what he was bringing, the hope that he was bringing. And I know that that happens so often in our lives, and you've probably known some believers yourself, or you've been there there's, uh, you're in your own life, that there's a struggle that comes along, and you pray about it, and that struggle doesn't go away, but maybe even turns worse. Maybe you've prayed for somebody in your family that the, the cancer would go away, or that their life would be spared, and it doesn't happen, and that that feeling is like, oh my gosh, I prayed for this, I hoped for this, and my hope was that it would be the outcome that I wanted, and it doesn't happen. And it may be just like, I'm gonna get this job, and I pray for this job, and I'm hoping, because this job is going to give me the, uh, the money that I need to pay off the bills, or maybe to have a new lifestyle, and that hope is dashed when that job isn't given to you, and your, your faith was like, oh, I wanted that, and I prayed for that, and it didn't happen, and and these men were in that same boat because they had hoped that, like they said, that Jesus was going to be the redeemer of Israel. Their idea was that Jesus was going to come and he was going to be another David. And he was going to slay and he was going to conquer and he was going to be another Solomon. And he was going to rule and reign like it's promised that he was going to do. But they were looking for the physical. And they were hoping on this and they were troubled. And yet after... That Jesus opens up the scripture and he reveals to them the, that feeling they had, they had that burning in their hearts and that he revealed to the, who he was, they were confident and they went back to the brothers and they said, this is what we saw. And that confidence changed. What was it? It was obviously Jesus revealed that he was there but he also opened up scripture and the truth was in the scripture that he revealed to them. The difference that we have as true believers from other religions or other cults or cults in general is that we have something that they don't have. Yeah, we, we can have that experiential feeling where, you know, like a, you, that coming to faith and that, place, oh my gosh, there's a new life in me. I'm gonna be a new person. Well, if you sit down and you talk to somebody that's uh, maybe a Seventh-day Adventist or Jehovah Witness or a Mormon, a Mormon, you'll hear this because we used to live around a lot of Mormons and all my kids had friends that were Mormons that they'll describe a burning in their bosom. No different than what these men had is they had a burning in their heart, but they have a burning in a bosom and it's an experiential um, thing that causes them to to believe in what they believe. Uh, even, um, Even in Islam, that you'll have that feeling of this is right because it has to be where what we have, the difference from us, is not an emotional experience, but an unfailing reliability of a faithful God laid out in Scripture. Let me say that again. The difference between true faith and cults is not an emotional experience, but the unfailing reliability of a faithful God laid out in Scripture. And that's what Jesus showed those men on the road to Emmaus. And that's what I'm hoping to unpack for you guys today as we go from scripture reference to scripture to scripture, tying the Old Testament to the New Testament. Um, I had a friend come over a couple weeks ago and she brought a big book of, of biblical truths and I was flipping through it and I found this and I go, oh, this is gonna be great. I'm gonna make a copy of it and I can make a copy of it for you too. But it's 100 prophecies in, in, in the Old Testament that proves Jesus is the Messiah. And as I was going through this one, I was like, going, I'm gonna use that one already, but that one's great and this one's good. And I ended up putting together a three-hour message. So I hope you guys are ready. Uh, it's very exciting. And, and I told my wife, it's gonna be about three hours. And she goes, you've gotta cut that down. Um, so I did. 
I have no idea how long it's going to take, so I'm going to try not to talk too much, but we are going to read some scripture. And one of the best things about this is when you think about those men burning in their heart as Christ unpacked the scripture, who is the author of scripture? I know there's 40, 40, how are we going to do it? There's going to be 40 different uh, authors, but who led them along? New Testament describes that the Holy Spirit carried them in, in and gave them, uh, uh, gave them the, uh, the understanding to write Scripture. So the Scripture is co-authored by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, if you read the Old Testament, is all about Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives uh, us the Scripture. He opens our eyes to understand the Scripture. And when we think about if we really want to draw in the Holy Spirit, it's not going to be in a, in a new song. It's not going to be in, in a pastor that is very uh, 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 evangelistic or very charismatic. It's in the reading of Scripture. It's the unpacking of Scripture. If you want to find the Holy Spirit and be moved by the Holy Spirit, it's in Scripture. Um, it's not something that has to be done. You don't have to go experience it at a, at a big building or a tent revival or at the river, but it's in Scripture. And what's wonderful that most people throughout all of history have been denied and, and truly denied is that they weren't able to have this at their fingertips. And if, if you think about the benefit, and there are some negative sides of technology, but you can have Scripture, all of you can have it, within a second. You can jump from verse to verse and you can pull up key words and key phrases and, and there's so much information that's here. So our, and again, I, I much rather read in, um, in the Bible. This is just something that is always there, another tool. But scripture is there for us and the Holy Spirit is desiring to un, uh, open it up and reveal it to you. So don't deny that time. So in scripture we have the truth. And the question that I'm going to ask over and over again today is, to what do you attribute your hope? And our hope is in salvation, but what do you attribute your hope? Is our hope more, than, uh, more coherent than uh, other monotheistic uh, religious groups? The Mormons, um, the, uh, the Muslims, uh, the cultural Catholics. I mean, is ours more coherent? And can you logically defend our hope? Can we logically defend our hope? And that's what I'm hoping that as we go through this, and again, this is just going to be a sampling. Uh, this is not going to be <clears throat> the exhaustive 100 or plus uh, verses or prophecies. It's going to be enough that I can put into a, a regular message so you guys don't get lost. <clears throat> but here we go. All right. Acts 29, uh, 20 through 22, and I think Tanner's going to try to catch up with me now. Um, actually, uh, this is something that I didn't put in there, so this is going to be ahead. So when Paul stood before King Agrippa, and this is one of the great things, and it says in Acts 26, 6, you, this one we want to be writing on. This is going to be before we get to the next one. And Paul said to him, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. That hope that the promise that was made by God to the fathers is in the Old Testament. It's in the Old Testament scriptures. So Paul was, was on trial. He was going to be uh, sent to Rome to be beheaded. And he was saying, my hope is in the promise that God has made to our fathers. Early church early, the early church testifies of the Messiahship of Jesus based on scripture. 
If we jump over to, and again, you guys don't need to do this, write this down. I highly recommend that you go back in at some other time today, especially on your Sabbath, that you read these things. But Acts 9, 20 through 22. Acts 9, 20 through 22. It's a story of when Paul is on his way to Damascus, and he's going there to persecute the church. And Jesus appears and he says, Saul, Saul, blinds him with the light. He falls off his horse. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And, it's, and obviously Jesus is already dead. He's already been raised. And he's, uh, he's talking to Paul and he's saying, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is referring to the church because that church body is his. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you attacking my bride? And Paul falls off. He says, uh, doesn't know what's doing and what are you talking about? And Paul ends up going and seeing a fellow believer. And that believer uh, teaches him and he uh, tends to his needs. And then these scales that were on Paul's eyes fall. And again, he's being called Saul. The, The scales on Saul's eyes fall and he's able to see. And this is where we pick up. And verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. No different than the woman at the well once Christ uh, revealed himself to her and revealed to who she was. And she goes, oh my gosh, I'm a sinner. I'm this. And he goes, she goes, I'm going to go and tell everybody. He goes, that's fantastic. That's what I was planning on you doing. And she becomes the first evangelist. She did not make it to a Bible study. She did not hear how to present the gospel. She goes, I'm burdened with this, and I'm going. And she becomes the first evangelist, and she brings people to him. But Paul, as soon as the scales fall, he goes, I'm going to go talk to people because people have to know this. I need to let this be known. And he says, he is the son. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name, the name of Jesus? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? Their question, like, what is he doing? This is a, this is a double agent. And, but, Paul, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who, do, who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. How did he do that? Showed them the scripture. The stuff that they believed in he showed them the scripture. We as believers in, the, uh, in this church age, we, we should not forget about what was promised because that promise gives us confidence. And Paul, when he was standing at the synagogue, was confident as he confounded the Jews there. The next set of verses, and again, this is the church, early church, using scripture to uh, prove Christ. Acts 18, 24 through 28. Again, just write that down. Please don't jump there. We're going to be turning pages left and right. And I believe Tanner's good enough to put that stuff up there. Acts 18, 24 through 28. This is a story of Apollos. And um, he was in uh, Ephesus and he was, I'll just read it. (laughs) Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexander, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, something we should all be. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit, taking scripture that the spirit co-authored and using scripture to share the truth, the Holy Spirit's going to get involved. So fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately of the things coming concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John, he did not know the full story, he began to speak boldly in the synagogues, moved by the Spirit, again, 
But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Oh, that start, he, they start unpacking more scripture. They start on showing him a little bit more. They start showing him the truth of Christ. I got chills thinking about that. And when he uh, wished to cross to Asia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through Christ, uh, through grace, had believed. Help those through grace. Again, grace is how we are saved. Had believed. For, the, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by scriptures that Christ was Jesus. He's taking scripture and he's showing the Jews that Christ was Jesus. The, the Christ was Jesus. Where did he do this? Publicly, It wasn't in a quiet room. He stood on a street corner and he shared scripture. He opened up scripture, not to just one, but to a lot. He was doing apologetics and street evangelism as soon as he could. There's nothing that's holding this man back. He's going to share the gospel. Now, he wasn't doing it as we, come to come, we say sometimes, uh, the bullhorn man, where you're going, you're going to hell. You're going to, and we're not saying that. He stood there, he opened up scripture, and he says, this is what the Bible says. This is who Jesus is. This is what the grace that we have been given through Christ, that we are saved and our hope is in Christ. He's opening it up. He's not saying that you're going to go to hell. You're just damned. There's going to be a rapture. There's going to be the second rapture. And then if you guys have read that, that's, the, that's out there too, the second rapture. A lot of fun stuff. But they opened up Scripture and they said, Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. And that was happening in the early church. It wasn't that they had to wait till the New Testament was written because it hadn't. They heard, they knew the Old Testament, and they gave them confidence to go out and share the gospel, to go out and share who Jesus was. So what we have in Jesus is our testimony. And in 1 John 5, uh, 11 through 12, and I love this one. This is, ah, got to write this one down and read it. 1 John 5, 11 through 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son, whoever has the Son has life and whoever does not have the son does not have life that is the encouragement that is that is what we have in christ and that testimony of eternal life is proven in christ in the old testament in the scriptures we're going to do another one here we go john 8 13 through 36 the truth will set you free. And I love this one because, again, it uh, references back to Genesis 21. You can write that down. John 8, 31 through 36 references back to Genesis 21. So Jesus said, here we go. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide, and again, and that's a, a phrase back from last week when Kevin was talking about abiding. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, and the Jews, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say that you will, be, uh, that you will become free? And Jesus answered them. And this is one of the great things, and you've got to pick this up. When Jesus says, truly, truly, and he's like going, this is emphatic. Listen to me. And then the next line he says, I say to you. 
the Jews of that day, and the Jews still today, they hold to the scripture. That's their reference point. That's what they're saying. He says, Jesus says, I say to you. He's coming at them saying that I have the authority over what you're saying in your tradition. I have the authority of scripture. And what I'm saying to you now is what you need to know and what you need to believe. Truly I say to you, truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Yeah, thank you. Amen. That is an amen moment. Because if you are a slave to sin, and we all have been, and let, until we are saved and the Holy Spirit indwells in us, we are slave to those sins. We talk about um, a free choice. The choice is free, but the choice is always driven by our desires, and our desires are for sin until the Holy Spirit changes our desires. Um, the next set of verses, here we go. This is great, and um, when our kids were in Awanas at a young age, they did this uh, story called Nick at Night, and I know Carol was a big part of that stuff, and it was a, it was a great one. I loved it, so Nick at Night. So in John three thirteen through 20, Jesus is in a conversation. He meets uh, Nicodemus, and he goes through, and he says, all right, gives him a, a all unpacked scripture for him, and uh, unfortunately, Nicodemus was one of the religious leaders. He was a, a teacher of the Old Testament, and yet he was still blinded by these things and not understanding. And then Jesus goes to unpack this, and he says in verse 13, No one has ascended to, into heaven except he who descended from heaven. He's talking about what he'd done, he'd done in the Old Testament. And he says, the Son of Man. We're going to hit this again later when we, talk, when we read in Daniel, but that's one of the titles that Jesus gives himself. Um, and as Moses lifted up the serpent, and we'll talk about this later, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is a bold claim by Jesus. He's saying that just like the serpent healed the wounds in the, uh, the wilderness, so the Son of Man is going to do the same, and he's going to uh, give eternal life. That's a bold claim, because there's no way that I would ever make a claim like that. There's no way I'd say, hey, you can have confidence in Matt Love, because Matt Love, and sometimes I talk about myself in the third person, but uh, I would never make a bold claim saying that you can have all the confidence in the world in me, because I know I'm a failure. I know I'm going to mess up, and I know I'm going to have uh, days that I don't come through, and even for myself. But, but to say that Jesus says, I, if you, have, if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. And that's a major thing. And then we go on, and I love this. I was going to leave this off, but I couldn't walk away from it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And this is Jesus describing himself, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Jesus is describing what the Old Testament has just said about him, and he's just bringing it to, the, to uh, Nicodemus' understanding. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And we're going to tie all this together. This through him stuff's important. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already 
So prior to us, us saying, I, I believe, we're condemned already. It's not like we're coming into this decision, like I got to make a decision for Christ, and we're neutral, and we're kind of safe. We're coming into that decision, that moment of the Holy Spirit uh, taking us over and taking over our lives, and we're like going, I'm a sinner, I'm already condemned. There is no, there is no like in between, and I'm going to make the decision, and then I you know, make a good decision or I make a bad decision. The bad decision's already been made. Because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And all this is the, ju- is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. Jesus is saying, I am the way. I am the life. I am bringing you into this. So as he's sharing that with Nicodemus, Nicodemus begins to understand. Does not say anything that he comes and begins to follow Jesus, but Nicodemus, it is revealed. The next one in John 14, 16 through 17, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says to his disciples, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. That's amazing because that means that if you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit and you have that salvation, that salvation, that Holy Spirit is never going to leave you. It is always going to be with you. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's a great promise. And so what do you attribute your hope? After we've read just these scriptures, what do you attribute your hope? And when we go into this and we start talking about the Old, uh, the Old Testament and the scripture, and we talk about the promises that God has made, and we wonder, I was like, all right, that promise was made by Isaiah, that promise was made by Ezekiel, that promise was made by Daniel, and we can go through all the lists. And the proof, because the, uh, the Israelites and the, and the Hebrews wanted to know, how do we know it's actually a promise by you. He gives a very clear understanding of what you need to be looking for. And this is one of the things that when we hear some people in modern day talk about being a prophet, you need to hold them to this. I remember a man named Copeland, 23 years ago, made a prediction and he prophesied this, that the Muslim religion, the, the, the state of um, Islam would be destroyed in two years. And I was like, wow, that's a pretty bold statement. Um, it didn't happen. So at that point, he's the false prophet. That word was not from God. And so in, uh, in Deuteronomy, here we go, Deuteronomy 18.22, and this is great. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that word is, excuse me, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not uh, be afraid of him. It, and, and they actually said that you must, you'll kill this man. But the, the consequences of speaking in the Lord's name and saying what is, is true was, was death if you did not come through with it. There is only one God, and that's one of the beautiful things that we hear about in uh, Scripture. And we're going to blow through these really quickly. And being Trinitarian, these verses should excite you because you're going to hear where it talks about God and it talks about a son and talks about the Holy Spirit. It says in Isaiah 43, 10 through 12. 
You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. That's God quoting, saying, I, or saying, I am the only one. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declare and, and saved and proclaimed, when there was no strange God among you, and you uh, are my witnesses, declares the Lord, I am God. Besides me, there is no other God. It says in Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Is there a, a God besides me? There is no rock. I am, I'm, I know not any. He is saying that he is the only one, that he is God only. And before, uh, in uh, Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had uh, formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The Old Testament says that God is who he is, that there is only one God. But when we go into, uh, into some of the other verses where it talks about, we're going to talk about a, a child being born and, and being born in a certain area, these are things that kind of like tie in who Jesus is as part of the Godhead. And the fulfillment of prophecies and promises of Jesus uh, in the New Testament authors wrote 56 times. And this is great. I'm going to say this again. The fulfillment of promises in the New Testament of the prophecies in the Old Testament, the New Testament writers wrote 56 times. This happened to fulfill what was spoken. 15 times alone in Matthew. And, and if you don't know much about Matthew, Matthew is a great New Testament book. It was the most quoted in the, uh, in the first two centuries. It, more commentaries were wrote in, written on Matthew because Matthew was so rich in, uh, in, in quoting scripture from the Old Testament. And again, fulfillment of prophecy, it was, this has been uh, done to fulfill what had been spoken. In Micah 5.2, it correlates with Matthew 2, says in Micah 5, 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, I can't even say that word, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth to me, for me, one who is the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, the ancient of days. This is beautiful because this is where we're actually, God is saying, pinpointing the location. And he does this often in scripture. He pinpoints the location where something specific is going to happen. And even sometimes says the name of the person that's going to do it before they're born. That's the beautiful thing about scripture is that we can have that confidence. But as, as Christ was opening up scripture to these two men on the way to Emmaus, he was saying, this is something about me. And in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, which correlates with Luke 2, 11, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, for to, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and the name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And I know when we sing the song and we feel wonderful counselor but it's one it's this wonderful counselor mighty god and that is el gabor and if if you know what el gabor means that gabor was sometimes given to david because he was a mighty courageous brave conqueror 
But when you add the L into that now says God is the conqueror, the, the brave, the, the warrior king. And it goes on later in the next chapter. It actually states that this is God in heaven. The everlasting father, the prince of peace. This verse is correlating qu quickly to who Christ is. Of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from the time forth and evermore. The zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. God has made a promise and Christ fulfills this in his life. And um, I would love to go into this a little bit. For, oh, that's my time? I'm, I'm, I'm killing this. Um, we're doing good. <laughs> All right, and I hope this is, I hope we're going to be able to stay with me because this is going to be the last uh, large set of um, Old Testament scripture. And again, it's going to be long, and, and I'm going to try to draw this in. But Isaiah 52, and we're going to roll into 53. If Jesus, if these men were walking and they're like, oh my gosh, we thought he was going to be the one. We thought he was going to uh, redeem Israel. We thought he was going to step in and be like David and, and Solomon. And he goes, you, you foolish ones, did you not read the scripture? This stuff has been around for over, again, uh, when this was written, almost 600 years before uh, Jesus ever came, before Jesus was born. But it's even 400 years before the Romans had ever stepped in and been uh, the rulers of the Mediterranean area and, and the known world at that time. And the Romans were so good at persecuting and brutally killing people, this form of crucifixion had not been known yet. They brought it in. But if you read Isaiah 52 and into 53, you have to be able to see the crucifixion. And I know this has been preached on forever, but hold it in your hearts that, that when you read this, this is talking about our crucified Messiah, our risen Savior. There we go. Um, Verse 52, excuse me, chapter 52, 13. And he was pierced for our transgression. And behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at him, his appearance was marred. Can you imagine Jesus walking up to uh, Mount Calvary, the uh, Golgotha, the hill of the skull? And he's been whipped uh, just short of 40 times by the cat of nine tails. He's been beaten. He's bloody. He's, he's, he's torn up. He hasn't slept. He hasn't eaten. And his body is, is just completely emaciated. He's marred beyond human resemblance. And his form beyond that of a child of mankind. Oh, wonderful. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. And for... And for which has not been told to them. Think about it. Nothing's been told to them. They don't know this is happening. And if you think about Pilate when he's standing there going, I don't see any problem with this. I'm washing my hands. He's like going, how are you, how are you saying that this? And he doesn't even know the, the Old Testament, but he's looking at a man that should not be condemned. For which he had not been told, they see. And that which they had not heard, they understand. When that soldier stands in front of Christ and he goes, surely this was the Son of God. Didn't know the Old Testament scripture. Didn't know it, but he's looking at this. Looking at this man who has been brutally murdered. In Isaiah 53, who has believed what, has, uh, what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
for he grew up before him like a, like a young plant and like the root out of dry ground. And he had no form or majesty. He wasn't rich. He wasn't powerful. He wasn't born, into the, he wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. That we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing that was in them because he was born into a small town, born in a manger, grew up as a, as a hardworking man, but he was nothing eloquent or nothing beautiful about him. And he was despised and rejected by men. He was rejected by his own people and a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So he wasn't anything that was above us. He was one of us. He felt our struggles. He was in our lives. And as one from whom men hid their faces and was despised, and we esteemed him not, surely he has borne our griefs and carried the same sorrows, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And when you listen to how the, uh, the, uh, the ruler said, Look at him crying for, uh, for uh, Elijah. Look at him crying for God. God have, God, have his God take him down off the cross. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his uh, wounds we are healed. It is the cross where our sins died. And we'll talk more about this in a second, about the great exchange, the double imputation, the, the wonderful uh, event that took place on that cross. But he was crushed for our iniquities and his wounds we are healed. And all like sheep we have gone astray. We have turned, our, turned everyone unto our own ways and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Christ took that all on for himself and he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. And if you know scripture, that is exactly what had happened. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and for us, and for his generation, we considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken and for the transgressions of my people. Talking to the men on the Emmaus, he's revealing all that you saw this last week, this last holy week, all the way to the crucifixion. This is what is being talked about. And they made his grave uh, with the wicked. He was stuck between two criminals. And in the rich man is death. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. All had, uh, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit, there was no untruth in his mouth. And yet it will, uh, yet it was the will of the Lord. And I love this part. And if you don't, uh, don't grasp this, this is probably the most important thing to understand that you are loved. And yet it was his will, uh, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and put his, and he was put I'm sorry. He has put him to grief. It was God's will to crush Jesus. It wasn't an act of, of the Romans, and it wasn't the act of the, the Jewish leaders. It was God's will to crush him. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and that's us. He, will shall, he, will sh he shall prolong the days, and he and the, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by the knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make 
many to be accounted righteous, and that's us. We were accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. By bearing our iniquities, we receive his righteousness. That's the great exchange. That's the double imputation. Christ takes on our cross and, our cro- and uh, takes on our sin onto the cross, and we receive the righteousness of his obedient life to God. We get to receive that, and it's, and it's wonderful. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the, uh, the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors, the two thieves. And yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. He stands between us and, and the wrath of God, and he takes on that wrath. And this all happened hundreds of years before the Romans. And Jesus' role in the Father's plan of redemption is carried out at the cross. My, I ask you again, to what do you attribute your hope? If it's not in Christ, you are still dead in your trespasses. If the salvation is not the desire, if the salvation in Christ is not your goal, but you're wanting the, uh, the gifts of the gift giver, then you're missing the point. It's, it's not the hope in a, a new life. It's not the hope in a new power that comes to you. Your hope is in salvation. Your hope is in Christ's, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And I love this stuff too as we get, we're finishing up a couple of these quick ones and I love this. You should write this one down because this is great. When Jesus was being um, tempted in the, in the wilderness, and unlike Israel being in the wilderness for 40 years, he didn't fail, he didn't disobey, but he conquered the, uh, Satan's uh, desire to take him down. He was, desire, he was uh, tempted with food, he was tempted with uh, being thrown, throw himself off the, uh, a building, and then the last one, when Satan takes him to a high mountain, he says, everything that you see, all the kingdoms of the world, I will give to you if you will just bow down. And he says, no, you worship the Lord your God and you serve only him. And Satan uh, left and Jesus was, uh, nur- uh, was nursed from that point by angels. But the promise that Jesus already knows was in Psalms 110.1. And this is the most quoted verse in all of the New Testament. Psalms 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That is to come. All of the enemies of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be a footstool to him. Every nation will be reached as he sits next to, in, in the seat of power next to God our Father. That is a promise. So when the devil was saying, hey, I'll give you this, and Jesus was like going, I've just got to go through a few more things, and it's already mine. You can't give me something that's already mine. And that's one of the things when we talk about where Eve was deceived. Adam was in the garden. He got to see everything that God had done. God, God brings up an animal and creates him, and he says, look, what do you want to call it? And Adam goes, oh, let's call it a, let's call it a lamb. Goes, That's a fantastic name. Nice job. Here, here's another one. And he gets to see all this stuff. 
Eve was brought in after the fact. Eve didn't get to see all of the things that God created. She got to hear, but, but she didn't get to see it. So when Jesus is being uh, uh, confronted by the great deceiver, he's like, no, I already know what this is all about. I already know what the truth is, and you're, you're trying to persuade me. It's not going to work. You will not deceive me. And he was obedient to the Lord, and the devil fled. fled. And that's the power that we have, that we know that this is going to take place, that all the enemies will be under his footstool because that's a promise that God has made. And in Daniel 7, 13, and this is where we hear the Son of uh, Man is given dominion. Uh, And this is Daniel talking about a dream that he has. And I see in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there come one like the Son of Man. And we'll pause real quick. Um... Coming in the clouds of heaven is not a good thing. Um, in the woe oracles that Isaiah gives, and the woe oracle, oracle to uh, one of them is to Egypt, and he says that the, the Lord is riding on the clouds, and he's bringing judgment. So the, the, uh, he, the Israelites knew, and especially the chief priests, when they heard clouds, they know that that's a problem. So it says that with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and it was presented before him, and ancient of days being the father, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and the kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If you think about this, The, the Jews, the Israelites, that people group, that nation was where the Holy Spirit dwelt. And their job was to go out and share the truth of who God was and to bring people into, the, into their nation, to, that people would be able to worship God. And they did not do a good job of this. They did not go and share the gospel. They did not uh, push uh, the truth of who Jesus was. But it's promised that it's going to happen And to him was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages. And if you think about how the gospel is spread, once that uh, that curtain was ripped, when Christ died on the cross, the curtain was ripped, the, the Holy Spirit was released. And now that new temple, what is the new temple? Where does the Holy Spirit reside? He resides in us. That was the promise that we talked about earlier, that we are now the temple of God, and now we are, we are the priests that are to go out and proclaim the truth of the gospel. And that is what is promised. But that, that and if you think about this, that statement that Jesus makes of being the Son of Man, if you go into Matthew 26, 64, and Jesus is standing before the high priest, and they go, do you claim to be uh, the Messiah? And he says, you say that it is. And the thing is, if Jesus was able to read their minds, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm reading into this, but if he was re- able to read into their minds, and they said, you are, in their hearts and in their minds, that you are, and they go, did you say this? And he goes, you say that it is. You believe it. You know it's to be true because all the scripture. And then he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated in power coming in the clouds. I got chills really bad. You will see the Son of Man 
Jesus sitting in a seat of power at the right hand of the Father. He's quoting Daniel, and he's coming in the clouds. There was judgment to come. And if you think about this, when Jesus proclaimed in, um, in the temple that your house has left you desolate, and he leaves out the east gate, and he goes up and he sits on the Mount of Olives, and he says, when he says that your house has left you desolate, this place was going to be taken to the ground. Because it was done, it was dirty, it was condemned, and he proclaimed that condemnation on him. Goes to the Mount of Olives, he sits there, and his disciples go, look how beautiful that temple is. Look how wonderful that is. And Jesus says, not one stone will be left on top of another. This place is desolate. This place is done. And he proclaimed condemnation on it. And if you've been to Jerusalem, you can actually go to that city, look over the wall, and where the Roman soldiers were throwing the boulders to, I mean, throwing the, the stones of the temple over the side because they had to scrape the gold off between the two rocks, or between the two uh, um, stones. That the temple inside the Holy of Holies was nothing but gold all the way from floor to ceiling, and, they, and it ended up catching on fire, melting down, and then they went in, and we, they were so desiring the riches that they went in and they scraped it. And I shouldn't say the Roman soldiers because it wasn't. It was mercenaries because the Roman soldiers had already gone back to Rome. But there was the mercenaries and they hated it and they wanted it all and they took it. And, and when Jesus said, this house is left to you desolate, it was coming and it came in 70 AD and it was done. And at that moment... When he was proclaiming judgment on them, they ripped their clothes off, they, they spit on him, they punched him because they knew what was coming, that judgment was to follow. And I love, I love how this all falls together. And if you can't imagine, like I'm just sharing a few things with you, and I know sometimes it's a little bit uh, difficult to stay focused, especially when you're reading all through that scripture, but scripture reveals Jesus. You can't go wrong by sharing scripture. You don't know how to say, what to say, share some scripture. If you don't know where to, how to articulate well, share some scripture because the Holy Spirit is in scripture. The Holy Spirit wrote scripture and the Holy Spirit uses scripture in our lives and in our hearts to reveal who Jesus is. I'm sorry I get excited sometimes. But I love, and then I love the symbols uh, that are given to us. And if you get a chance and you get to, to study some of, um, some of the, the uh, rituals that had to take place, and we're going to cover a few things. And I'm going to talk about Adam, and I'm going to talk about um, Abraham, hit on Moses, and then we're going to finish up with the um, Yom Kippur and the, uh, the Day of Atonement because it's going to tie everything back into uh, the beautiful time that we get to have at the end with communion. And I'm going to try to go through this really quickly, so stay with me. Adam. Adam was placed in the garden, just like I said earlier, and then, and then the world had been created, but God was like bringing everything to Adam. He's like, all right, I created this. What do you want to name it? It's a lamb. That's right. What is this going to be? It's going to be a dog, or probably not a dog, but you know, he's just naming all the animals that were coming into him, and he realized that he doesn't have a helpmate, so God creates that for him. And Adam had a job, and it was to tend and to maintain this garden paradise. That was his job. And we refer to him as our first Adam and Jesus as our second Adam. And Adam had, had seen everything created and he knew who God was. And he, God literally brought things out of the dirt and made it for him. So he knew who God was. And he knows that, um, 
that God is amazing, that is something that he can't do. And I want you to think about this. This is a wonderful thing. In 1 Corinthians, and you're not going to see that up there. In 1 Corinthians 1, write this down. And in Revelation 4, these things are, are uh, revealing of who created everything. In those two verses, all things are created through him. Who? Jesus. And for him, who? Jesus. Jesus created everything. So he wasn't absent from the garden and he wasn't just sitting there in heaven going, all right, I can't wait to my turn to get down on earth and start doing stuff. He was there the entire time. It was in him and through him that all things are created. And in Revelation it says everything existed because of his will. And yet Adam seeing these things, and even though Eve was deceived, Adam saw this and knew that he wasn't supposed to do one thing, don't eat of that tree. Don't, don't eat of that tree. And everybody wants to think it's an apple, but there's trees throughout all of Scripture where it's, it's always an olive tree. And then, and then Revelation talks about the two olive trees. I have no idea what trees they are. I'm actually getting ready to do a big study on those two trees. But when you look at those, he says, he says don't do this one thing because you'll surely die. And Adam disobeys and he eats the fruit. And death enters the world through Adam And Eve, the world enters into, I mean, the death and sin enters into the world through Adam and Eve. Adam being our first federal head, being the, the first Adam that failed in the garden to obey God. And God says, you know what? You're not going to die permanently, but there is going to be death. And God takes an animal that he created for Adam and Adam named and probably played with and nurtured. And he goes, being just, because God is just and there has to be a, a covering of sin. He takes the animal and he sacrifices the animal so that Adam will not die. That Adam's sins will be covered and he clothes them in his, their nakedness. But that animal was the first sacrifice. That animal was the first sacrifice that covered sin. Who provided the sacrifice? God provided the sacrifice. It wasn't Adam's creation. It wasn't anything. It, God created the animal that became the sacrifice to save Adam, to allow him to prolong his life. And God is holy and holy and just, just as the Lord God, and he had to go, do this. God provides the offering. The one thing that we, and I want you to think about this, and again, we'll talk about this in the crucifixion again, but the punishment for Eve was awful. In fact, if it was up to me, I would probably never have children. Um, I, I can't imagine a guy going, you know what, I just passed a kidney stone. I can't wait to pass another kidney stone. I'm probably going to have 12 of them, and then I'm going to put all 12 of my kidney stones in my photo album to share with everybody. But women do this, and I don't understand. They have a child, and they go, I'm going to have another child. I'm like, no. I got to, I got to watch four of them happen. I'm like, yeah. You know, my wife is an amazing individual to actually want to go back and do this. It's uh, so that, but, but what was the punishment for man? What was the punishment for man? That he was going to tend the ground and there was going to be thorns that he was going to have to deal with. There was going to be thorns in the soil. And when you think about this, and as Christ went to the cross and he became the sacrificial lamb, what did the pagan soldiers do to Jesus? 
They made him a crown of thorns. So as Jesus is carrying his cross to his death, he's had a crown of the curse pushed into his head, blood dripping into his eyes of the curse that happened. In the garden where one man just had to do something right, but the first Adam failed and the second Adam had to carry the curse literally on his head bleeding from the thorns being shoved into his head by a pagan soldier. It blows my mind when I think about that. And when I see, see a picture of Christ on the cross, or if I just see a, a, a crown of thorns, and you're like, well, that was the original curse. And Christ carrying that all the way to the, uh, the Golgotha, knowing that that was the curse that, uh, that was given to man. The first Adam brought sin and death in the garden. And the second Adam conquered sin and death. Where? At a garden. If Christ dies on the cross and is never risen, we're still dead in our uh, sins and trespasses. Christ died on the cross, taking on our sin, receiving his righteousness, and then raising himself like he promised that he would do in, on the third day gives us hope because that is our resurrection that we take part in. When we're baptized, we baptize into the water, into his death, and raised up in his resurrection. We are a new life. With the resurrection, we are saved. <laughs> When the women went to the garden and, and Mary is there and she sees the two angels sitting on the, the slab that Jesus was doing, two angels, just like the mercy seat, and he, she sees him, where, are, where is Jesus? Where have you taken him? And he goes, he's not here. He's risen. And she comes out and she says, she sees a man standing in the, in the garden and she assumes that he's a gardener. And she's crying out, where have you taken him? Where has he gone, my Lord? And he says, why are you weeping, woman? And then he reveals himself to her. That man standing in the garden, that Jesus standing in the garden, she assumed that he was a gardener. What was he doing? I don't know. But, but he was in the garden and she assumed him because in the, fir, in the garden, our first Adam failed and death came into the world. In the second garden, I mean in the garden, our second Adam, he conquers it and we are, uh, we are redeemed. We are reconciled to our father. I love that one. That was, that was one of my favorite ones. Um, but the crown of thorns. And then what it happens? Christ crushes the head of the serpent in, in that act. All right, so the next one. I love how this stuff starts to play together. In Adam, Genesis 22, and he's taken Isaac, and God says, Adam, rise and take your son, your one and only son, and you're going to take him and you're going to sacrifice him. You're going to go to a new land, and there I will tell you specifically where you need to, uh, to sacrifice him. And Abraham going, okay, I've been down this road. I'm an old man. I have a lot of experience, and I know that I'm going to obey you. And uh, Abraham takes Isaac, and they travel, and they go with two, uh, two of the young men uh, in the house of Abraham. And as they get close, God reveals the mountain that he's uh, supposed to go to. And then he says, all right, you guys stay here. We're going to go. We'll be back in a couple days. And as they're walking up the hill... Uh, Abraham had fast, or they had gathered the wood, and a Isaac, his son, is carrying the wood to the to the, uh, the to make the altar to be sacrificed. And uh, Isaac asked to his dad, he says, "Where are we going?" And and uh, Abraham takes him. And he says, 
where is the sacrifice? And as they're building the altar and putting the wood on it, I, uh, Abraham says, God's going to provide his sacrifice. And as he bind, binds him up and he lays him on the altar with the wood and with the fire off the side, he starts to take out his sword. And God says, stop, don't kill the, uh, the boy. Don't kill him. And in behind him, Abraham finds a... a a ram stuck in the uh, thickets, and he's able to then take him. He goes, you're going to sacrifice that one. Takes his son off, they sacrifice it. And that mountain in, is, is now called, or was called, God will provide. God will provide. Because, and then, and then God said to, uh, to, to him, you do not need to do this. He says, and this is what's cool. When God responded, he says, by myself I have sworn. God's the only one that gets to swear by himself. It's not like I swear by Matt Love is this. No, it's like only God can swear and he can swear by himself. Declares the Lord because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is in the seashore. God said, go to this mountain, do specifically everything that I said, and you're going to sacrifice your son. And then right at the moment, God goes, no, I'm going to provide. No different than in the garden, God provides the sacrifice there because God provides the sacrifice for us. It's not you. It is not you. And here we go, Moses, and I love this, because Jesus was a better Adam, and there was a better sacrifice. Jesus is a better Abraham, and Jesus is the Lamb of God that God provides as we're moving through this. Here we go. Moses, the, uh, uh, the Exodus account, there's 12 plagues, and each plague attacks one of the deities of Egypt, and I actually love this stuff. But in the Passover, the last one, he says, um, the Passover in Exodus 12, the instructions on how to perform the sacrifice. They had to do at twilight. They had to have a certain amount for the food. All the food had to be eaten. eaten. If it was a too small of a family, they had to partner with another family. But they had to eat all of the animal. And some of the crazy things, it says a lamb without blemish, a one-year-old male, don't break the bones. Don't break the bones. And, and you love this because you think about what Christ is. Like when Christ gave up his spirit and then the storm was coming and the earthquake happened and the soldiers said, let's get out of here. Let's speed this thing up. And the, um, the, the, the Jewish leaders are going, you need to get him off the cross because we can't have this going on as we're going into the Sabbath. So what did the soldiers do? They went through and what? They broke their legs, just smashed them. They dropped to the death. They're not able to push back up to catch their breath to relieve that, and they end up suffocating. But the lamb's legs, or the lamb's bones are not broken. Don't break its bones. The blood on the doorposts and the lentil, the Lord will pass over and forgive and remove their sin. But what had happened after that? The Hebrews were able to leave Egypt their oppressor, their, their, their slave owners, their, the people that were holding them in bondage, they were able to leave. They were no longer underneath this burden. Jesus does the same thing for us. As he is, takes on our burden, we are no longer a slave to what? Sin. The Hebrews were slaves to the Egyptians. We are slaves to sin. As Christ, the Lamb of God, takes on the, uh, our death, the Lord passes over them, puts the, pain, puts the sin upon him, and we are no longer a slave. Our oppressor is gone. I love this stuff. All right. 
The next one is the bronze serpent, and this is the best one because Jesus talked about this in John 3, and it lines up with Numbers 21. So stay with me. This is great because I love this one too. People sinned and spoke against God and Moses. They were walking in the wilderness. They didn't like doing it anymore. They wanted to have some comfort, creature comfort. They didn't like the food that God was providing for them. They didn't like the cover of uh, uh, this cloud to protect them from the sun, and they didn't like any of this stuff. They wanted to have, they wanted to lay down roots, and they complained about God, and they complained about Moses, and God sent them fiery serpents, and these serpents would come up and bite them, and they would die. And the people cried out to Moses, we have sinned against God and you. Help us. Deliver us. They, and, and, and again, Jesus is a better Moses, but at that moment, Moses was going to deliver him. And God said, fashion yourself a bronze serpent and hang it on a stick. And if you can imagine this, when Jesus said, just like the serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man. What they had to do is as Moses had put that serpent on that stick and they, he raised it up, if they were bitten, and again, that the snake was the sign of their sin, if they were bitten by the snake, all they had to do is look at the serpent and believe that they would live. If that doesn't give you goosebumps, all we have to do is focus our attention on Christ and his crucifixion and his resurrection and believe and we live. That's the promise that we have. Just like in the desert, just like in the wilderness, the serpent was lifted up, so will the Son of Man be lifted up. But those who believe in him will live. And I love that. That's, that's, that's again, Jesus is going, unpacking it for these two men on the road to Emmaus. This is what it said. You know this. This is me. It's about me. It's about foreshadowing. It's about, it's a practice run. Practice is great, but when you get to the game and the real thing, you want to know what it is. And I remember coaching football for years, and I, we'd go through a play, and I'd teach the play, and all of a sudden I'd go, do you know what this means? And you know why we're doing this? And they go, no. I'm like going, how? And I thought I was a good coach and a good teacher, but they were missing it. And I know Jesus, you foolish, do not pay attention did you not read and know, uh, know all this was about me? And just like the serpent, just when he was talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was a brilliant scholar, and he still missed it. And I love this because um, in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. I just love that. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and this is the last thing, and then we'll close it up. The day of repentance and of God's forgiveness. On the Yom Kippur, on the day of atonement, the Jews would fast, they would do a bunch of other rituals, but one of the things that they, uh, they all did is they repented of their sins. And they repented about everything they could do, and they repented all day long. So, I mean, if you're like me, you're going to have a laundry list for the whole year of sins and things, and I know that there's going to be guarantees that I'm going to forget something, but they were going through all of their repentings and repenting and asking for forgiveness for people that they've hurt and asking for forgiveness on things that they had done, and they're constantly and all day long repenting. And yet at the end of the day, if they don't repent enough, God still goes through and cleans their, uh, clears their record. They're still not gonna, we're still not gonna be able to do enough. We're still not gonna be able to repent enough that God still has to come in and finish everything off. 
And that was for the hope is that they would be in the book of life for one more year. And then they had to redo it. And then they had to redo it. And every year they had to go through this. And what it was is a dress rehearsal. It was a practice run. It was a time for them to start to say, all right, when, this, when the Messiah does show up, that this is, this is the final one. There was a ceremonial purifying of the high priest before they went in. There was a cleansing of the temple, animal sacrifices. And the best one is like, you guys have heard this before, the scapegoat. And they would take a goat, they would put a, 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 a crimson rope or a cord around his uh, antlers, or, or his horns, not his antlers, his horns. And then they would take and they would put all of the sin of the people, the high priest would pray all the sin onto this animal and they would send the animal out the east gate. And again, the east gate is really cool because it happens in scripture all the time. Send him out the east gate and they would make sure that it never came back because just, and again, sometimes they'd throw it off a cliff, but they would make sure that this thing isn't coming back because what, of our, what are our sins when they're forgiven by God? They are as far away from the east as from the west. And if you don't understand that, that the east will never meet the west. If you continue to go north and you hit the North Pole, at some point you are then going to be going south. If you continue going south, at some point you're going to end up going north. The difference is if you go east, you will always be going east. It doesn't stop. It just continues. You will always be going east unless you're a flat earther and then we got to talk about some other things. <laughs> but that is from the east. So the scapegoat, the, the, the sins were placed on the goat and they were sent out and they were gone. Never to be seen again, never to be heard again. But God's final provision, the sacrifice is no longer necessary because Jesus is a better high priest like he talks about in Hebrews Jesus is a better high priest Jesus is a better uh, prophet he is a better king he is a better sacrifice and Jesus is our perfect sacrifice and only Jesus can take away our sins that that goat or that scapegoat was used once and then they had to get a new one and they had to get a new one and every year they had to get a new one but we only need one that takes on our sin and that's Jesus with Jesus, we only need one sacrifice and that great exchange takes place. That is the truth. That is, that is who Jesus is. And now final thoughts, and I'm gonna tie this all together and, and we're gonna finish it off. Um, when you think about everything, the whole totality of scripture from the very beginning in Genesis all the way through Revelation, Revelation, not Revelations, but as you finish all the way through this, it's all about Jesus and who he is. So when... Adam and Eve were in the garden and we had our first Adam and he failed and God drove them out of the garden they drove them out the east gate and then when um, when Abraham was to travel to sacrifice uh, Isaac he went to a land of Moriah and on that specific mountain is where he was to be sacrificed to sacrifice Isaac and the second temple um, after they uh, came back in Nehemiah and they built a temple and Herod uh, the Great built a much grander palace, it was built uh, on, on top of that mountain. And then on Golgotha where Christ was crucified and it looked like a skull and the, and the cross poking right out of the bottom and Jesus' resurrection. There is, there is a, an interesting uh, geological uh, evidence that would say that the Garden of Eden 
is in that same area of the temple that, um, that where Isaac was to be sacrificed in, in the land of Moriah where, is where that also is taking place, that that's a geological uh, location of that. And then the temple and Golgotha and the resurrection and where Christ says he's coming back is all in that same location. It's, it's extremely interesting when you think about in, when the Babylonians were going to destroy the first temple and it says that the Holy Spirit left out the east gate and went up onto a mountain of olives and rested there. And then when Jesus proclaimed judgment upon that temple and said this temple is going to be destroyed, he left out which gate? The east gate. Where did he go? Mount of Olives, where he proclaimed judgment. When we think about all these things tying together and they all uh, go back to one individual, which is Jesus, the Holy Scripture that's being unpacked to these men and to us, if we decide uh, decide to read it, is all about Jesus and his work, his, his life which gives us righteousness, his death that takes upon our sins and his resurrection, which gives us eternal life. It's about him. So my last question in this, we're going to finish up and we're going to take communion in a moment. To what do you attribute your hope? Where do you, where do you draw your hope from? And I'm hoping that it's scripture. Um, but as, uh, as, the, as Rebecca and Hope come up and, and we're going to take communion, when Jesus was meeting with the two men and he says he broke bread and he revealed to himself, he blessed that bread and it was another time where Christ had communion, he had the, the, ate the elements with some disciples. We're going to have that opportunity right now that we're going to take some, uh, we have some bread and we have some juice. And if you are a believer in Christ and that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and you have um, an understanding and a realization, this is for you. There's no magic, no symbol. There's not a, a process of you being saved by doing this. It is our opportunity to commune with the Lord and understand that it is through Him that we are reconciled to our Creator. We get to go back to that relationship that Adam had in the garden where heaven and earth meet. When the Holy Spirit is in you, you are the temple of the Lord, and we get to commune with Him. This is an opportunity for us to remember. So as they come up, um, as you come up and, and you take the communion, take that moment to, to pray, to, to, um, to confess your sins. You don't have to do it to me, but do it to the Holy Spirit. Confess your sins. Connect yourself uh, spiritually to the, the life source that is in Christ. And pray and ask for forgiveness, not just for the sins you know of, but the ones that you don't know of. Knowing that God will forgive you. No different on the day of atonement. Forgive you for the ones that you can't even think of because he is good and he provides the sacrifice. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and as we uh, begin to take communion, we ask, Lord, that you will just uh, reveal in our hearts, show us who we are, show us of the sins that we need to confess that we may be right with you, that we will uh, come before you broken, contrite, and asking for your forgiveness and renew us and strengthen us in this spiritual moment. We thank you, Lord, for your son. We thank you for uh, your provision in our lives. Amen.